If you got a Bible, you can open up to Revelation. Uh, Revelation, remember, singular, not plural, Revelation. All right? I'm going to correct you if you say Revelation, so I'm going to get on to you. Revelation, we'll be in chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start from verse 9, and so since you all just sat down, I'm going to ask you if you would please stand uh, as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Revelation chapter 9, or chapter 1, verse 9 says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on an island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, to Thyatira, Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed with long robes with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars and the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and for all that you've given us. Thank you for the picture of Jesus that we get in this passage. Uh, so, Father, today I, I pray that that be our focus, uh, that it be Jesus, uh, that we behold him, uh, and that, Father, we look into his face, uh, and uh, that that be the point of, of, of what we teach today, that, it, that it's all about Jesus. Uh, we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So, last week we, we started the book of Revelation. And what we said was that the revelation, uh, what revelation means is just unveiling uh, or a display of. And so in other words, what the book of Revelation is, it is the unveiling or the display of Jesus Christ. That the book of Revelation is primarily all about Jesus. That it wasn't given to us as a code book so that we can open it up and flip through it and watch the events, the nightly news, and try to decipher everything that was going on. It was never meant to be that. Instead, Revelation was meant to show you Jesus, and it was meant to show you and I that Jesus is supreme over everything. And so in the first eight verses that we looked at last week, what we saw was that Jesus stakes his claim over every millisecond of human history, from the time of creation all the way until the final consummation when he returns to set this world right. And what we said is that he's Lord over history and sovereign over all nations and their armies and all people in their hearts. And that you and I as believers can rest knowing that no matter what comes our way, that we can find grace and peace to endure because Jesus is our faithful witness. Remember, he never lies. He always tells the truth. 
that he's risen from the dead, that he's reigning over the world, and he has loved us, and he's freed us from our sins by his blood, that he's died for us to bring us into his presence, and that he saved us, and he's redeemed us, that you didn't do anything, that he did it all. And as a result of that, as Christians, he's now made us a kingdom of priests. Now, how many of you guys remember the magic eye craze of the 90s? Does anybody remember the magic eye books, like my 90s kids? Like, remember they were the books that, that they had books, they were posters, uh, they were everywhere. They were like this kind of form of, uh, it was Japanese pop art is what it was. And it was these computer-generated images, and they, if you looked at them, they looked like squiggly lines or boxes, and they were pink and blue, and they were all these wild colors. And like, the thing was, is that you would look at these things, and if you, if you looked at them the right way, you could see this 3D design that would come out of them. Yeah, okay, you, you remember what I'm talking about now? Like, I, I can never do it. Like, my friends would be like, oh, I see a cat. I'm like, you're a witch, man, because I can't see anything. Like, it took me forever. And finally, about the time that I could finally figure out how to see those dang things, uh, the craze was over, and it was no longer cool to do anymore. See, the trick was, with these pictures, was not to focus your vision on the surface of the page. If you remember that, if you just looked at the surface, you wouldn't see anything. So you almost had to like go cross-eyed and, and get real blurry-eyed and tears would come in your eyes and you had to look beyond, beneath, or behind the picture and then you would see the hidden image that would appear. Somehow like the, the, the graphics torque in some repeating design pattern that would deceive your sense of perspective into seeing three-dimensionally another pattern that was hidden behind the picture. It's a great illustration for Christian thinking about the world, isn't it? That we really need to see the pattern that counts. That we have to focus beyond the surface to see the shape of the deep realities that are not accessible to the casual observer. And that's exactly what Revelation does for us. It says, hey, all those things seem chaotic. All those things seem out of control. Although it seems like God has forgotten us. Look beyond what you can see in front of you to the Lord Jesus who has everything under his sovereign control. And so in verse 9, let's pick it up and let's see what John says. In verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So in verse 9, John starts off by identifying himself with us, his readers. Notice what he says. He says that he is your brother and your partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and in patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. So first he says that he is a fellow, fellow partaker in the tribulation. And we'll go into this more as we get into Revelation. But for John, the tribulation is a present reality at the time of this writing. So what John's saying is that this tribulation is something that he's currently in. And it's something that will continue all the way into the imminent future. John says he's our brother. He's our partner in the tribulation. But then he says he's also our brother and our partner in the kingdom. So he's saying that faithful endurance through tribulation is how one reigns in the present with Jesus. 
And what we're going to see is that this will become a major theme throughout the book of Revelation. So believers will conquer by refusing to compromise in the face of trials. So just like Jesus, the cross always comes before the crown. And I love our stained glass up there at the top, the cross and the crown, because it's a great reminder of that very truth. The cross always comes before the crown. John Calvin put it this way. He says, the church of Christ has been so divinely constituted from the beginning that the cross has been the way to victory, death the way to life. In John 16, 33, Jesus himself said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And then he tells us, in this world we'll have what? Tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. We will go through difficulty. We will go through the cross before we get to the crown. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, uh, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. In other words, it's coming. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when it's going to happen. As though something strange were happening to you. Peter Beasley Murray puts it this way. He says, contrary to some modern prosperity teacher, membership of Christ's kingdom does not shield us from suffering. Rather, for John and his readers, membership of the kingdom was the cause of their suffering. See, John says, I'm on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, if you go home this afternoon, Google Patmos. It is not Destin, Florida, okay? It's not Cancun. It's not some uh, seaside resort. Patmos was a rocky, rugged island. That's all there was there, rocks and lots of them. It's about six miles long. It's about 10 miles wide. It's 40 miles southwest of Ephesus. And the Romans loved this island because they would take people and they would exile individuals to this place as punishment to work the mines that were there. And presumably, that's, that's why John's there. See, what John's telling you and I is that Jesus was so real and so precious to John that he would rather be exiled at almost 90 years old on a barren island than not talk about Jesus. That obedient fellowship was more important to John than the comforts of life. So he understood, as we all should, that the cross comes before the crown. And so this is where John's at. And while he's there, he says he's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and he hears behind him a voice like a trumpet. So a few things. This is the Bible's only use of the expression, the Lord's Day, for the Christian day of worship. So presumably... John is there. He's praying on Sunday. He's in the Spirit, and that phrase will occur again in chapter 4. And on two other occasions, John will say that he was carried away in the Spirit. So most commentators believe that this is John's way of describing some sort of divine inspiration, or John was in some sort of a trance-like state. Either way... He was so immersed in the Spirit and subject to the influence of the Spirit that he saw a vision of the risen Christ on this island. Now, I just want to give you a word of caution here. This comes from Sam Storms, who is a charismatic brother in Christ, and he says this. He says, there's nothing to suggest John was seeking after or expecting to receive this vision. There are no formulas that might induce such an experience. 
One should always be postured and prepared to receive whatever God might choose to give, but all semblance of manipulation must be avoided. So in other words, there's no magic formula where you can go home today, close the door, say the right words, and all of a sudden be ushered away to where John was, okay? That's what Sam Storms is telling us. He's telling us to be careful, that always be ready to receive what God may give you, but what happened to John is usually probably not normative for the Christian life, is what he wants you to know. And in verse 11, Jesus speaks and he says, hey, John, write down what you see, and then I want you to send it to these seven churches. So John alone literally saw this vision, but it was intended to be communicated and experienced by all Christians. So in other words, send this to seven literal churches, and he lists the names of those churches, and we'll look at those next week. But also remember, seven is the number of completion. So all churches, at all times, at all places. So this vision that we read about today was given to John for you and me in 2021 in Spearman, Texas at First Baptist Church on January 17th. Jesus appeared to John so that Jesus might appear to you and I by means of John's record. Jesus could have appeared to all the churches in the same way he appeared to John. Jesus could appear to you and I today, but he doesn't. He appears to you and I through the inspired words of Scripture. So today, for you and I, the primary way that we behold the glory of Christ is he comes and he shines his light on us through the Word of God. That's why we make such a big deal of the Word of God here at this church. That's why we want to preach it and proclaim it, because this is the way that Jesus reveals himself to you and I. And so Jesus has come to John in a vision, and he's told him to write down everything he's about to hear. So verse 12, John turns around to see Jesus, and, and look what he says. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, uh, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around uh, his chest, uh, a robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. So John turns, and the first thing he sees is seven lamps, golden lampstands. Now in verse 20, we're going to find out that these lampstands represent the churches. So once again, they represent seven little churches that we've read about, but then they also represent all churches throughout all ages, since seven is again a number of completion. And this is a direct reference to Zechariah chapter 4, where the prophet Zechariah sees a vision of a lampstand with seven lamps. It's figurative to represent the temple itself, and by extension, faithful Israel. So here in Revelation, the lampstands represent the church. And the significance of Christ being in the midst of the lampstands should not be lost on you and I this morning. Jesus is not only over the local church as its authoritative king, but listen... He's actively present in and among the local church as its living Savior. So FBC Spirit, we are one of his lampstands. And Jesus is here this morning. He's here. And he invites you and I this morning to look at what John saw. 
See, Christ's appearance with the lampstands shows that the church is at the center of everything that God is letting happen on the world scene right now. The church is that big a deal to him. See, this principle was on display with the fall of communism in Eastern Europe in 1989. I don't know if you guys know this story or not. But the spark for the fall was lit when members of a Hungarian Reformed church in Romania refused to allow their minister to be arrested. So as the communist authorities came, the members of this church surrounded their church with the minister inside, and they lit candles, and they would not allow the authorities in to take their pastor. Right? Well, I hope y'all do that for me. Some of you guys. <laughs> Some of you are like, whoops, they got right past me. <laughs> so their defiance of evil sparked a citywide protest that spread and ultimately swept aside communist regimes in country after country. American Rear Admiral Bain said this. He said the U.S. intelligence officers were surprised by these events because of their blindness to the importance of God and religion. Richard Phillips commented, he says, Likewise, in America today, listen to this, please. The most significant institution is not the government, or the political action groups that dominate the news but the Church of Jesus Christ. If the Church is silent, or foolishly accommodates the world, its light will burn dimly so that unbelief spreads. But if the Church stands courageously as a light for God's truth, even in the face of persecution, its bright flame is the only true hope for reform. Brothers and sisters, we've got to be so careful here. Church in America for far too long, especially the evangelical conservative church, has been dangerously close to aligning our hope for the future with politics. And how many times does that got to crash before we finally get it that Jesus is saying, that's not where your hope's at. That, that's not where the power's at. The power is in me. See, what this verse is telling us is to shine the light of Jesus in our local church and in our communities and sit back and watch what God will do with the world's strongholds through faithful churches. I'm becoming more and more convinced that the only thing we can control is our little corner of the world, folks. That's it. I know Twitter and social media and Facebook and all these things make us all think that, oh, we've got a global reach and all people care what we have to say. No, they don't. <laughs> all we can worry about is what do we do right here in Spain? We shine the light of the gospel. We care about others. We care about missions. We care about spreading that love. And then we sit back and we see what Jesus can do when we're faithful to that right here. We are stronger than any political group out there. Remember that this week, whenever it's Wednesday, and you're at home despairing because communism's coming or whatever it's going to be. We're more powerful than any government institution. And that's what John wants us to see. That's what Jesus wants us to see. And then John turns and he sees Jesus. Now listen, I'm going to caution you from trying to draw a picture of Jesus from this vision, all right? Go Google this one if you want. We're not to think that this is what the resurrected Jesus looks like, okay? These symbols reveal not what he looks like, but what he is like. So I'll repeat that one more time. These symbols reveal what he, not what he looks like, but what he is like, okay? 
So John turns and he sees one like a son of man. If you remember several years ago, we looked at the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says, the son of man is given dominion. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And the son of man is dressed like a priest with a long robe and a gold sash. So the Old Testament priest would attend lamps and lampstands in the temple. So Christ is pictured here as the heavenly priest who tends the lampstands of his church by correcting and encouraging them. A lot of you have been members of this church for a long time. No, there probably have been periods of time where God has corrected this church, right? And then there's been other periods where God's encouraged this church. That's what Jesus does as he stands in the midst of the lampstands. And at times he says, well, first Baptist church, they didn't spank it. We've got to correct them. And then other times he encourages and he lifts up. It says his hair was like white wool, like snow. It's a reference again to the ancient of days. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, he says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. And his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. So in other words, this is pointing to his deity. This is saying that this Jesus has a oneness with the Father, that Christ and God can be thought of in the same terms. And so what I would tell you is this, is we have a God, his name is Jesus. That's what he wants you to know right here, is that the Father and the Son are one and the same. But it also shows his wisdom and maturity. It shows the dignity of Jesus that comes with age. So Jesus isn't old as we measure age on the earth. He's unaffected by time, but he is eternally old in the sense that he's always existed and that he possesses the dignity and knowledge and wisdom of someone who's experienced all of life. That's good to know. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Jesus is the judge. His constant presence with his churches means that he always knows their spiritual condition. Think about that. Where one of his lampstands. He always knows the spiritual condition of his church. It might look good on the outside, and maybe on the inside it's not. He always knows. He always knows. Sam Storm says this. He says, the eyes of our risen Savior do not droop. They're not closed in sleep. They are not sullen or sad. They burn ablaze with power and energy and insight and excitement. He sees everything with all the vitality of youth, but he thinks with the wisdom of age. His feet are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Um, this more than likely, uh, nobody can really come to consensus, but it points more than likely to his moral purity and the basis on which he expects his churches to reflect that same purity. That's what that means. His voice is like the roar of many waters. Uh, this is mentioned twice in Ezekiel. We don't have a grid to interpret it other than to say that it is incredibly overwhelming. If you've ever been to a large waterfall, you know how loud it can be. It's a very overwhelming thing. And in his right hand, it says he held seven stars. In verse 20, it says those seven stars represent seven angels. So again, it means completeness. So he's not only the Lord of the earth and its churches, but his reign extends to the heavenly realms as well. He's Lord of this earth and he's the Lord of the heavens. 
Later, we learn that angels play a role in communicating with John, and they can play a role in pouring out God's wrath on an unbelieving world. But at all times, these angels are held tightly in Christ's hand, and they are under his complete control. Everything is under his control. Notice the sword. It's not his hand. It proceeds from his mouth. This refers to Isaiah 11, 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This is speaking once again of Christ's role as the judge, and it's a two-edged sword because his word cuts both ways, doesn't it? To reference to the gospel. Right? As the gospel is proclaimed, preached and as it's proclaimed day in and day out, as it's preached and proclaimed today, it's going to do one of two things. Either one, it's going to harden the heart to where the person goes to judgment, or it's going to soften the heart so somebody comes to faith in Christ. It's always doing those two things. And that's what it speaks of. And then his face is shining like the sun in full strength. One commentator said it so much better than I could. He says, and so glorious and pervading is the light which issues from his face that in the new Jerusalem there'll be neither sun nor moon nor lamp nor any other light. And yet rendered so luminous by his presence that even the nations on the earth will walk in the light of it. And so the lightning brilliancy which is to flash from one end of heaven to the other at the time of his coming and the glory which then to invest in him and the whole firmament is simply the uncovering or revelation of that blessed light which streams from his sublime person. This is the Jesus that John saw. And notice his reaction. Verse 17. I love it. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, and the golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven uh, churches. John, John's reaction follows that of, of many people throughout the Bible when they get a real dose of what Jesus is like, of his holiness and his majesty, and they hit the dead, right? He falls down as if dead. It's the exact same pattern that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. Both Daniel, both John see a vision, both fall on the ground in fear, and a touch from a heavenly being strengthens both of them. The Son of Man then describes himself as the first and the last, that he's the sovereign God over all history from beginning to end. He's Lord over history, he's the force behind history, and he is causing all of history, every bit of it, to fulfill his purposes. Right? Can you rest in that? He's causing all of history, everything even happening right now, will fit into his schemes, and it will fulfill his purposes for this earth. We can rest in that, Christians. We can rest in that. But he's not dead. He says he's the living one. 
He describes the resurrection in verse 18. He says, I'm the living one who died and who is alive forever and ever. The same phrase is used of God the Father in Deuteronomy 32 and in Daniel chapter 12. He says he now holds the keys of death and Hades. So as Christians, hear those words. He holds the keys of death and Hades. He said this last week, fear not. That's what he's saying. Fear not. He's conquered both sin and death, so we need not fear death, or we need not fear martyrdom. We need not fear persecution, because he's overcome those things. Jesus has endured those things, and he's emerged victorious. Jesus has absolute authority and power over this realm. So it means as Christians, we shouldn't fear death, because it brings us into the immediate presence of this Jesus who's just been described to us. We're the last people who should be afraid of death. Because it means we get to be with Jesus. He says, therefore, John, because you've seen all these things because of who I am, because I've revealed myself to you, write down what I tell you about the things that you've seen, things that are, and those that will take place after this. Now, I'm not going to get into verse 19 right now. A lot of people try to find a clue to the verse, to the book structure of this verse. And what I think it does when you do that, it obscures the meaning of this text itself, all right? So we'll discuss this more in detail later on. We'll discuss the angels next week. But simply put, what, what Jesus is telling John is this. John, you're standing at the beginning of the end times. And you're to record what's happening around you and the things that are going to continue to unfold as the times proceed until it reaches its conclusion. When I say enough's enough, I drop the curtain and I need to have it. Now, I know when you come to a passage of scripture like this, you give me funny looks because you're like, okay, that's great, wonderful, but what practical benefit is there for me, Byron, right? I mean, yeah, you gave me this really weird vision of Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth and white hair like an old man. I just don't get it. I mean, what good is this for me? I mean, how is this going to help me with my struggles with temptation and idolatry and sin and just my day-to-day -day life? I mean, how does this work for me? I'll tell you, there, there are countless ways and methods and strategies um, that Christians use to facilitate change and moral transformation in their lives. And quite frankly, most of them don't work. So some people will say, well, we just need to get rid of the rules. We just need to live under grace, right? Just live under grace and just be free and, and just happy. And, and that's where change comes from. Others gravitate towards the opposite extreme. They say, oh, well, forget about that grace, man. We need more rules, more rules and legalism. If we can just pile the rules on, then that will really make people change. Some love to say, just stay away from everything that actually might be enjoyable in this life. Don't enjoy any of the good things that God's given us and just be miserable. Others will say the key to change is willpower. Learn to say no to yourselves and say yes to Christ. And then there's others that just say, well, just retreat and hide out, run for the hills, and that's how you live successfully. It's just stay away from the world and don't worry about catching any of the sinnies or any of the germs that are out there. Just get back. And listen to me, I think there's good things in all those approaches. There are. We can probably pull some practical benefit from all of those things. But none of those things are the primary catalyst for growth in the Christian life. None of those can give us the strength to endure all that this world throws at us. None of them. See, the best way for growth in the Christian life is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Jay read this to open our service today. Paul says, if we all 
with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, if we ever hope to be changed, if we ever have hope to have the, the strength to, to stand strong and to trust in Christ through whatever comes our way, it will only come to the degree that we behold the glory of the Lord and treasure Him above everything else. See, listen to me. Inside of every Christian, there is a movement, as Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. So that means if you're in here, you do not have the impulse to change or to be more like Jesus. Then hear me, you may not be born again. And I just insert that comment to tell you this, that this Jesus that we read about in Revelation is a judge. And he will judge those who do not know him. There will be a day that he will send them to a real place called hell, separated from him for all of eternity. And what I want to stress to us in this room is this, is that Christian values and following Jesus are two totally different things. They're two different things. I heard a great story uh, that Al Mohler tells about a, a woman who was distraught that her daughter had grown up to become an atheist. And she was writing to Dr. Moeller, and she told her that she had raised her daughter under strong Christian values, and she just didn't understand what had happened. And Dr. Moeller responded that Christian values are not the same as Christ himself. Hell will be filled with people who are avidly committed to Christian values. Christian values cannot save anyone and never will. Salvation comes only by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, do you know Jesus? Have you beheld the glory of Jesus? Folks, listen, we tend to become like whatever we admire and enjoy, don't we? We take on the characteristics of the things that we cherish the most. In other words, you become what you behold. Now think about that. Some of you may be wondering, why am I not becoming more like Jesus? Perhaps the answer is in what you're beholding. Perhaps you're spending way too much time focusing and beholding social media. Maybe you're spending too much time focusing and beholding on news and politics and everything that's happening around you. And it's no wonder your whole life is a frazzled mess right now. That you can't find any peace because you're not beholding Christ, you're beholding something else. It's no wonder that many of us are no different than we were two years ago. Paul says that we are to gaze at the beauty of Jesus. And when we get the picture of Jesus in our hearts, that's when change begins to happen. So what it means is that contrary to whatever you believe, your greatest need in this room today is not financial, it is not physical. Your primary need isn't to lose weight or gain the respect of your peers, to have a nicer house or a better car. Your primary need and mine is spiritual. And so we need to be people who radiate the beauty of Christ. See, the point of this text is to give you a picture of who Jesus is. Our passage is making abundantly clear that it's only this kind of Jesus that we read about today, this majestic and merciful Christ, the whole Christ, 
who can shatter fear and trouble, uh, comfort troubled hearts. It's only this Jesus who can put us into dust because he's so mighty and exalted. There is no enduring comfort in the therapeutic or life coach Jesus. He'll never be adequate for the needs of your soul. Only this Jesus we read about can do that. So Christians, is this the Jesus you're looking to this morning? Like I've said, the reason so many of us are fearful is because we don't have our hearts set on this God who's king over history. This God who holds the keys to death and Hades. This God who's conquered and who's already won. This God who makes history happen. Many of us are still immature because that's not the God we're looking at. We're looking at something else and we're becoming like the thing that we're looking at. So all of us today in the seven days on this Jesus that John presents to us in Revelation. Listen, it's all about him. And all of history is on a collision course with this Jesus. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you so much for your word and I thank you for this vision that you have given our brother John for us in Spirit, Texas in 2021. A vision of the risen Jesus who reigns over history, who holds the keys to death and hate, who is a judge, um, who, Father, will judge the living and the dead. Father, I pray that it be this Jesus that we look to today. So, Father, for, for my, my brothers and sisters in this room, I pray that you forgive us for whatever it is that we're beholding other than Jesus. And that today you would convict uh, our hearts and that, Father, we would repent of whatever it is that, that we've put in your place and we would turn our gaze back to you. Knowing that when we see this Jesus, that's when our hearts change. When we look at this Jesus, is when we have peace and comfort. It's when we can rest knowing that no matter what comes our way, no matter what um, our world is going to throw at us, no matter what our country looks like in the next four years, that, Father, we can have the um, strength to stand and endure because of this Jesus who has already conquered. So help us rest in that. And Father, if there's anyone in here that does not know you, I pray today that they would understand that the only way to be in your presence is through Jesus Christ, the faithful witness who stepped down out of heaven and did what we could not live the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved. He took our place on the cross. He bore the wrath that was reserved for us for our sins. Father, he did that for us, and then he rose again three days later. And so for those of us who place our trust in that Jesus, our guilt is removed, and we are now counted righteous, pure, and clean because of Jesus. And so I pray today that um, as the gospel has been proclaimed, that, Father, that it would soften hearts today and not harden them. And that if somebody needed to hear that today, that they would, they would find somebody, they would catch Joe or myself, and, and just say, hey, I didn't know Jesus when I came in here. Something's changed. Father, uh, thank you that you reign rule over all history. Thank you that you're here with us today, walking in our midst. And help us to be a faithful church whose light shines brightly. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.